So uh, Doug approached us about a, about a month ago about uh, doing a series on Psalms. And uh, sometimes he runs his series, buys us, and, and says, what do you guys think about that? And I thought, oh, a series on Psalms, that would be great. And then he said, uh, and I'd like you and Eric to preach some of it too. And, and, I, and I took a little bit of a double take. I heard Eric write. He's done that before. He does a pretty good job. And, and, then, uh, and then he said my name. So there was about two thoughts that went through my head. Uh-oh. And then Psalm 95. Uh, so preaching is not really this music guy's thing. Uh, short talks on, on teaching, on worship, no problem. Do those all the time. Uh, workshops on leadership and worship and, and music, no sweat. Preaching a sermon, that is a whole nother animal. And uh, so I pray that you'll bear with me this morning uh, as I come before you humbly uh, bringing God's word uh, and as we uh, seek him out together. But if there was a section of scripture that you'd want a worship guy to do, it would be Psalms, right? I mean, right in the middle of God's book, all these songs and, and uh, poetry and, uh, and artistry and all, thing, all things artsy, feelings, music, mood swings, all of it right in the middle of Scripture. Uh, but to understand why Psalm 95 is my favorite psalm, you have to understand a little bit more about my background and where I came from. And, and uh, some of you may have heard this at Party with the Pastors, and uh, others of you may not. Uh, but uh, I grew up in a Christian home in a great Baptist uh, doctrinal church and uh, with a really great uh, youth pastor and youth ministry. I was involved in music at school from a very early age. Um, I'm told my first music performance was actually a paying gig. Uh, my Aunt Evelyn was waving a $5 bill on the front row of, she was the children's choir director, and, uh, and that's how they got me to sing my solo that Sunday morning. So um, $5 at, you know, compound interest. Uh, in in uh, high school, I began considering music as something that I would do when I, when I, grow, when I grew up. I applied and was accepted to Cedarville University. And soon after, I participated in a, in a national competition called Towns for Christ. Uh, and I won that and was able to, uh, to get a full year's tuition paid at Cedarville University. And that allowed me to go to Cedarville and uh, grateful for that. Um, so I decided to major in music and to major in church music ministry at Cedarville. But my original thought and heart behind a church music degree was, uh, was to use that as a fallback on my CCM, Christian Contemporary Music career in Nashville, where I was going to make it big. And uh, so obviously I came to college with a little bit of an ego problem. Um, pride was a big issue for me, when, and, uh, and I would soon come to realize that. Uh, during my freshman and sophomore year, God used several people, uh, several different classes and situations uh, that both chipped away at my pride and as well as completely revolutionized my thinking on music and what my life was to be about. See, I'd, I'd never been taught uh, growing up in all my music experience that the Bible had a lot to say about music and actually... It was intended for God and for his pleasure. Music wasn't just supposed to be about God. It wasn't just uh, something that you made sure didn't have bad lyrics. 
you actually used it to worship God. And I began to see music as a tool and a vehicle to worship the Almighty God. And that my purpose as a believer was to glorify God. And that the purpose of the church was to glorify God. And that corporate worship was a huge part to that end. And we looked at worship in the Bible and and looked at scriptures like Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5 and John 4 and the Psalms. And I began to realize God was shouting at me from his word. I was created for his glory. And he had a different plan for my life. My passion for music and my own stardom was being replaced with a passion for the worship of God, the church, and teaching the church this concept of what music in the church is supposed to be about. I saw a huge gap in my experience of what church music was growing up and what scripture had to say about music. And I believe uh, God was showing me what what worship was uh, in his his word. And during the midst of this, I was traveling on on a Cedarville touring team called the Kingsman Quartet. Okay, we did a lot more Phillips, Craig, and Dean than we did Gaithers, so please don't judge me. Um, but uh, each night we did a concert, and uh, in that concert we were supposed to introduce ourselves and tell a little bit about ourselves and our major, and then uh, and then share our favorite scripture. And at the same time, God was shaping my heart and my my mind towards Him and what music was. I came across Psalm ninety-five. And uh, each night, uh, I felt like it was summing up what God had done in my heart and uh, what he wanted me to do with the rest of my life. And so every night I would quote these verses from Psalm 95, and this is the NIV version. It would say, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation, for our God is the great God, the great King above all gods. And thus Psalm 95 has been near and dear to my heart for 12 plus years now. And uh, this is what I believe it has to say to us this morning. And uh, before I get there, let's pray together and ask him to bless his word. God, you have ordained uh, scripture and um, uh, we are to hear your voice through it. We are to see um, things rightly because of it. We are to change because of it. I pray this morning that you would cause us to be hearers of your word and doers of it as well. Pray that you would bless your word and enable um, me as I uh, bring it for your glory today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, if you want to turn, if you haven't done that already, if you want to turn to Psalm 95, um, there's clearly two sections to this passage, a call to worship where we see the what, the why, and the how of worship, and words of warning with an illustration of how to keep yourself from being a a worshiper of God. 
Now, let me be clear on the word worship that we're going to be using here today. There's an element of the word worship that, um, that has, uh, has a, uh, all that we do is a, is a sacrifice unto the Lord. Um, we use the term lifestyle worship a lot. And I believe that that is a biblical and scriptural, scripture teaches on that part of worship. But uh, let's set that part of worship aside today. And uh, we're going to use the word worship. When we're talking about worship, we're we're talking about the actual act of expressing love, praise, and adoration to God. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Oh, come, let us us we look at this passage we see the come let us reality hit several different times oh come let us let us make let us come let us make all in the first two verses then in verse six it says oh come let us worship let us kneel There are times in Scripture where you see uh, personal and private worship described. And there are times in Scripture where you see public, corporate, gathered togetherness worship going on. And clearly, that's what this passage is about. And when we see something repeated so many times, like we do in Scripture here, um, it means that it's important. And uh, I believe that uh, to God, the church gathering together for him is a big deal and such a big deal that i'm pouring my life and energy into that gathering each week there are some in this day and age that uh, would say you know what church corporate worship not a big deal Uh, not my thing don't need that don't want that it's just a me and god thing that's all i need don't need the church and then there are some that would say you know what, this sports thing is a little bit more important than church this morning. Or uh, this business venture is just a little more important. You know what, I'm kind of tired. Don't really want to go this morning. Um, or whatever the excuse is. Nick, what's the big deal? What is really going on when we gather anyway? What happens in corporate worship? Why should I make this a priority? Well, I'm glad you asked. I want to share with you some of the things I believe God's word has told us about what corporate worship is all about. In this passage, we see that uh, corporate worship is a, is a minister to the Lord. You see, uh, let us sing to the Lord. Make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Corporate worship is first and foremost for God. We see in Acts 17, 25 that God doesn't need our worship like he's up there wringing his hands nervous that we're not going to. But John 4 tells us that he's seeking worshipers and invites us in his presence. Isaiah 43, 7 tells us that we were created for his glory. And then 1 Peter 2, 9 tells us that we were called to be a royal priesthood so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. You are called to be priests. 
And in Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament, when we see priests, one of the priestly functions uh, was to minister to the Lord and to bless the Lord. This minister to the Lord kind of worship is a, is a vertical kind of worship. You may notice here that at Harvest that we don't uh, sing a lot of the songs that you see or hear or, uh, on, uh, on Christian radio or K-Love. We do some, but not a lot. And, and you, may, you may have noticed that. I want you to know I don't have a problem with K-Love and the radio, but a lot of times those songs don't hit what I would call the worship bullseye. They're not necessarily bad, but they, they use a ton of personal pronouns, and, and they're songs that you could honestly sing to your spouse, and they wouldn't know the difference. Uh, and oftentimes those, some of those songs are focused all on you. And uh, I believe our corporate worship gatherings should be vertical. They should be all about him. And uh, if you spend some time looking at Revelation 4 sometime, maybe this afternoon, spend some time in Revelation 4 and 5, you'll see the kind of worship that's going on in heaven right now and the kind of worship that will go on all through eternity is a vertical worship. There's no personal pronouns, just the Lord front and center. Well, what else happens when we worship corporately together it deepens our satisfaction in God alone. John Piper in his book, God's Passion for His Glory, states, the essence of authentic corporate worship is the collective experience of heartfelt satisfaction in the glory of God. Or a trembling that we do not have it and a great longing for it. Nothing makes God more supreme and central in our worship when people are persuaded that nothing is going to bring them satisfaction. Nothing is going to bring satisfaction to their dark, empty, deceitful heart besides God. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in Him. When we stop to gather together, we are deepening and declaring our satisfaction is found in him. Not our stuff, not our schedules, or our kids, or whatever else it may be. It's found in him. Worship also brings a God perspective on our lives. You see, when we focus vertically on the Lord together, and then deepen our desire, our satisfaction for God together, our lives, our trials, our families, our jobs, our joys, our sorrows is viewed under the greatness of our God. Nothing becomes too difficult to handle because God's in control. Nothing gets out of whack in our priorities because we've seen God as the ultimate desire of our hearts. Parenting is boiled down to show my kids this great God and Redeemer. That's what's most important. The sports, the rest of it, it'll take care of itself. Show my priorities. You name it, corporate worship brings a proper perspective to life. And corporate worship is a powerful force in our hearts and minds. But all, not do we just minister to the Lord and we deepen our satisfaction in God and we bring a God perspective to our lives, but Scripture also tells us that we minister to each other. Colossians 3.16, it says, it encouraged us to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs 
with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. When we come together and we go vertical together for the Lord, we teach each other about truth. We proclaim to each other that I'm all about that. I'm all about him. And we stand side by side and lock arms together. One of my most memorable Sundays here at Harvest is um, the week that, uh, that Joe King uh, went to be with his Savior. And uh, we had a great um, uh, memorial service that week. And it was probably actually the first time we had ever spent time uh, worshiping the Lord during a, during a funeral. And that was a very, very cool moment. But then the following Sunday, uh, Marita King walks in and she worships the Lord with her whole heart. I was encouraged. And I was brought closer to the Lord in that moment because of her witness to the Lord. And her declaration that God was the most important thing in that moment. She also knew that by coming, her church family would take care of her. And would minister to her. And support her and love her. Was it going to be hard? Yes, it was. But isolation wasn't the answer. Centering her heart and mind on Christ with her church family was her response. That's a cool response. I think that's what, um, that's what happens in corporate worship. Mutual encouragement, side by side, life on life. Have you heard that before? You hear it every Sunday. That's why we gather. And honestly, that's why we worship corporately together. Another way we minister to each other is found in Psalms 43. Uh, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God, and many will see and fear and put their trust in him. Worship has an evangelistic side to it as well. When we proclaim God's greatness together, when we proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Savior and his blood purchased our our sin... uh, There's evangelism in that. And scripture tells that many will see and fear and put their trust in him. People will respond. Well, the other thing that happens in corporate worship that we find in scripture is unity. If you want to look up Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. Ephesians 5, 18 through 21. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we worship vertically together and declare our love for God, we are then encouraged to submit to one another. 
Worship was supposed to be one of the most unifying experience of a church body life. And sadly, in so many churches, worship style wars are the most destructive thing to unity that exists. Praise God, that isn't going on here. And uh, let's continue to strive for that pattern of unity. Well, that's what happens in corporate worship. Why do we worship? What kind of things do we do together? What forms do we use? The passage doesn't give us an exhaustive list, just some examples. So let's look at these examples from Psalm 95. Uh, Those first two verses, again, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. I've broken these into two categories. How do we worship? We've got loud, expressive, celebratory worship. And then later we'll see just a little bit of humble, uh, surrendered worship. But uh, it first tells us to sing to the Lord. Sing songs of praise. But Nick, I can't carry a tune. I sound terrible. It's not my thing. I'm a guy. Guys don't sing. Hey, don't look at me. I didn't make the request. I'm not the one telling you to sing. God's the one telling you to sing. But don't worry about how you sound either. Because I don't believe that God is using his ears to hear what's going on in worship necessarily. I believe he's using his eyes to see what's going on in your heart. Upwards to 60 times in scripture, it commands us to sing to the Lord. My role up here is not to be the singer for Harvest Bible Chapel, Indy West. My role is to get you singing before the Lord. Are you doing that? There's a great story in the book, uh, Worship on Earth as it is in Heaven. Some of, several of our small groups are going through that book right now. Uh, it's a guy, by a guy named Rory Nolan. A guy comes up to Rory and uh, he asks Roy if he knows of any vocal teachers. And uh, Roy's thinking, uh, he asks the guy, um, well, how old are your kids? You know, when are they available? The guy says, no, 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 it's not for my kids. I'm not worried about them. It's like, it's, it's for me. And then Roy's like, oh, great, American Idol wannabe. And then the guy continues to say, I, you know what? I, I just want to learn how to sing to the Lord on Sunday mornings a little better than I am right now. Rory was like floored. I mean, a guy that gets the command to sing to the Lord and he wants to invest some time and money and energy into that. How cool is that? Well, it commands us to sing and it also says to make a joyful noise or, or as the, the NASB uh, puts it, uh, shout joyfully. All right, so you can't sing then maybe you're better at joyful noise. All right, you can do that. I know you can. And some equate worship only with quiet meditations, refrained expressions of gratitude. But this passage clearly is encouraging us to worship loudly with shouts of uninhibited praise. It also tells us to give thanks. Come into his presence with thanksgiving. This uses the word presence there. It actually literally means come to his face with thanksgiving. The fact that you and I could come face to face with God 
gives us reason for thanks. All through Jesus Christ. We should be rehearsing together weekly as we gather the things that we're grateful for and that we're thankful for. Well, later in verse 6, we see, uh, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Here we see humble, prostrate, surrendered worship. The most common word used in Scripture for the word worship is, uh, is a word, it's uh, proskuneo, which means to prostrate oneself, lay flat, bow down. It has suggestions of getting as low as you can before a holy God. We see examples of this again in Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5. Even though we have joyful times of worship, we should never let our access to God because of Jesus Christ, we should never let our access cause us to be flippant or careless in our approach to God. Our heart should always be laid out flat before him. Maybe even sometimes physically, we should be bowing or kneeling before the Lord in corporate worship. I fear we don't do that enough here. When you have this posture before the Lord, it shows the Lord's surrender. Shows a bowed reverence. You're saying, take it, Lord, all of it. It's yours. And so there are worships, there are worship uh, elements together where we do loud praise and we do surrendered bowing down and reverence. And that's how we worship prescribed in psalm 95 now what does psalm 95 tell us about the why do we worship well let's look at verses three through seven together for the lord is a great god and a great king above all gods in his hands are the depths of the earth the heights of the mountains are his also the sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry land well come let us worship and bow down let us kneel before the lord our maker For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. For the Lord. You see the word Lord used in there a few different times, and that's uh, the Hebrew form Yahweh. Uh, Yahweh has two focuses in Scripture. He is the self-existing one. He wasn't created. He is and was and always will be. And that's reason to worship. And the second part of Yahweh is he has established a covenant relationship with his people. Uh, originally a covenant with Israel, but now a covenant through Christ to us, a promise of forgiveness through Christ's blood. Another awesome reason to worship. And it goes on to say, because he's the great God. We worship him because he's the great God. He is supreme, he is infinite. And immense and has perfection all to himself. Another reason to worship. And also because he's the great king above all gods. This psalm was originally written for Israel. and They lived in a polytheistic society. They had many gods with idols and fake gods that other nations worshipped. And they even tried to get Israel to worship. They needed to proclaim that God was the center of 
of their worship. And they needed to understand that he was the one true God and he was worthy of their worship. I think we might need that today. Do we have idols today? Yeah, they're probably not of wood and silver and gold. Well, I'm pretty sure we do. I love how Timothy Keller puts it. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Use these questions to help identify idols in your own heart. What do I think most about? How do I spend my money? What sets me off emotionally? What brings peace, joy, security, and fulfillment to my life? If the answer to any of those questions isn't God, it's an idol. And how you react when something like that is taken away also reveals whether that thing is an idol. God wants and demands first. He's the great God above all gods. This passage goes on to tell us that he's creator God. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The whole earth from the tallest mountain to the core of the earth is plopped right in his hand. The seas, they're there right there too. And he's saying, my hands formed it all. The use of hands in this passage stresses God's immensity. He's huge. Buddy the elf would say he's ginormous. The use of hands also communicates his power and control of all creation. He not only made it with his hands, he continues to sustain it with his hands too. The use of his hand also communicates his ownership of it. He owns it all. He's the huge creator, sustainer, and owner of it all. That's reason to worship. Psalmist is like, you need more reasons? Okay, I got more reasons too. Because he's maker God. Not only did he create everything around us, he made you. Verse 6 says, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. Those of us, um, this, this great big huge God knows you intimately. He fashioned you. He formed you. Psalm 139 tells us he knit you together in your mother's womb. Luke 12, 7 says that he knows every hair on your head. He's your maker. That's reason to worship. But not only did he make us, we are his. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hands. Just like in creation where he created it and sustains it with us. He made us and then he cares for us. He sustains us. He sent his son to save us. Those of us that are redeemed, we're his sheep and he is our shepherd. 
John 10, 27 and 28, we see this shepherd and sheep analogy again. And it says that no one is able to snatch us out of his hand. Again, using that word hand. But this hand is a hand of protection and care. And I can't help but think that it points to the nail-scarred hands of our Savior Jesus Christ who purchased us from the grips of sin and death. He's the powerfully personal shepherd of our souls. Reason to worship. There's so many ways to worship, so many reasons to worship, and so much good that comes out of corporate worship that we find here in Psalm 95. You kind of might be thinking, that's awesome. Let's get to it. Let's do it. And I would love to do that. That would be a whole lot easier for me right now. I can do that a lot better. Um, But the passage doesn't stop there. Words of warning. Warning. You want that kind of worship found in, in 1 through 7? You want the kind of worship that God accepts? One of the most sobering passages in worship to me is, uh, is Matthew 15, where Christ says to Jewish leaders of the day, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me. You see, we can go through the external motions of verses 1 through 7, but in your heart be as dead as the, and lifeless as the day is long. What's going to keep you from that Psalm 95 kind of worship? Verse 7b. Today, if you hear... His voice. Well, Nick, I've, I've never really heard God speak. I think you have. Um, it's probably not in an audible voice. I maybe contend it wasn't in an audible voice. But he is speaking to you today, right now, through his word. God is speaking to you right now through his word. Hebrews 4.12 calls this word a living and active, sharper than any sword that can pierce your heart. Anytime you pick up your Bible, you can hear God speaking to you. It's not some mystical, well, God told me I should go buy the green car. Really? I don't really think he did. He might have told you something about your finances or something in his word. God is also speaking to us weekly as we dig into his word together corporately to find out what he has to say to us. So today, if you hear his voice, if you hear his word, do not harden your hearts. So God speaks to us through his word. He says, do not harden your hearts to his truth. You want to be a God worshiper? Believe his word. Love his words. Accept it as God said it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to be all about it. And then God gives us an example from the Israelites. 
Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Quick synopsis of the Israelites. They're in Egypt. They're slaves. God delivers them through many miraculous events, right? The plagues, the sea, he parted the sea, drowned all the Egyptians. And then they get into the wilderness and they start to grumble. They grumble about food. So God provides manna for them and and then they continue, and then they start to complain about water. God, you're not taking care of us. And then this water issue, this is the Meribah and the Massa that uh, uh, verse 8 is talking about. These people got so faithless that God would provide for them although he had proved himself over and over and over that they threatened to stone Moses because they didn't have water. Well, so then God provides water from a rock, hence the rock of our salvation in verse 1. And then they spent a year on Mount Sinai, and then they went to the gates of Canaan. And they sent out spies and... And uh, God told them to go into the promised land to enter their rest. And the spies freaked out and they didn't believe God. And so, uh, like verse 11, God says, they shall not enter my rest. That unbelieving generation wanders 40 years in the wilderness and dies. Warning, don't be like that. They shall not enter my rest in this passage was for the Israelites and, and was Canaan. But if you want a little parallel passage to study this afternoon, Hebrews 3 and 4 brings up this same psalm and talks about they shall not enter our rest as being the same rest that we enter when we come to Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. So what can we learn from the Israelites about... Um, the things that are going to keep us from that Psalm 95 kind of worship. They saw God's faithfulness and didn't trust and surrender their lives and circumstances to him. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work over and over and over God showed his faithfulness and over and over and over his people questioned complained doubted verse 9 told us that they tested they made him prove over and over and they rejected God we also see the Israelites saw God's ways and commandments, yet they decided in their hearts to reject it and go away and go their own way. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. They saw God's commandments on tablets, 
from a guy who just came down from a mountain and his face was glowing because he had saw God. And yet they thought, eh, don't know. Don't know if I believe that. They thought their way was better. So you want to be a God worshiper? Like Psalm 95, 1 through 7? Warning, don't be like these people. Don't be like what you see on the screen there. Be a God's word hearer and doer. Soften your heart to him. Believe and trust in his ways and faithfulness. Well, how should we respond to him? Because when we read God's word and study it together, he's asking us to do something about it. John 4 again tells us that he's seeking worshipers, and I believe that that's our highest and foremost uh, functions as believers. So are you a God worshiper? Have you come to Christ for your sins? Have you said to him, my soul is so bent against you, I turn from that and cling to you? Today, while you hear his voice, Soften your heart before him and turn to him. Believer, is, is corporate worship a priority in your family's life? Or are other things getting in the way? What's getting in the way of you embracing that come let us reality of the Christian life? What needs to change in your priorities? Worship team, you can come on up. Maybe you're here constantly and you see the value of gathering for God's glory, but um, it's not been your thing. I believe that God is telling that us today that it is, it is our thing. It's an us thing, all of us together. What's your mindset when you come to this place? Is it to minister to the Lord, express your satisfaction in him, to minister to others, to promote unity? Or do you come as a consumer with an attitude of what am I going to get today rather than how can I give to my God and my church family? Or maybe participation in worship is something you need to grow in. Maybe ask yourself, do I sing and shout joyfully to the Lord or do I stand there, arms folded, mouth barely moving, passively bringing God nothing, saying you're not worth it, God. You're not worth my energy. Maybe your attitude in worship needs to change. Do you come before him humbly and kneel before an awesome God in humility? Respond today while you hear his voice. God, we thank you for the opportunity to look at your word and to see what you prescribe as acceptable worship before you. And we want to do that together. We want to grow in that and get better at that. We ask and pray for your help. I pray that your spirit would continue to work in people's hearts and lives and that um, our worship would be acceptable to you. I pray you continue to uh, use this time for your glory as we respond to you and take some longer moments this morning to respond in praise as we close out.